Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. This week we look at Nobel Prizes and some interesting applications of the technology of CRISPR. And we've talked a lot about different prizes here on this podcast before, and we go into a little bit of the history and the challenges with running a global prize awarding system. Plus, we find out about some innovative use and helps use CRISPR to make more sustainable and more efficient wood that could perhaps lead to a circular economy. Science has many awards and many prestigious prizes, one of them of course being the Nobel Prize itself. And we've talked several times here about the many difficulties of the awarding system in general and how that it can unfairly single out individuals rather opposed to teams or the large contributions made by many people over many years to scientific research. And singling out sometimes an individual often misses a larger picture or doesn't recognize the right people involved. It's not even to get into the racial and gender issues of the Nobel Prize in a historical sense and in a modern sense. Now, of course, this year we saw the awarding of the Nobel Prize to three women in physics and chemistry. And that is a huge achievement, notably especially in chemistry, where Emmanuel Charpentier and Jennifer Doudna both shared together the prize for chemistry. This is both the first time that two women have won with no men for the chemistry prize and shared it equally in the modern era. That is a tremendous achievement. And digging a bit further into it, they've won it for their work on CRISPR. It was a great collaboration between these two women which helped them turn CRISPR into a new a tool that could be used for therapy and treatment. But the problem is that the discovery of CRISPR and the work around it is a, a long multi-person project over 30, 40 years. Hell, you could go all the way back to the original discovery of DNA. And when you draw that line on who you credit in a particular Nobel Prize, it's very difficult. Now, Harpentier and Doudna did great work in revolutionizing the use of CRISPR specifically for treatments, which opened up whole new avenues of science. That in and of itself is remarkable. They really did build on some substantial foundations of work by researchers like Francisco Mojica, his collaborator, Ruth Janssen. But all of that built off original work from Osaka University by Yoshizumi Ishino and his colleagues all the way back in 1987, and so on and so on. So you can see how even with a discovery like CRISPR, the modernization of it and the work for it to turn it into a great new revolutionary area of medicine, there's a lot of people who are involved over many different parts of the world over many different years. So. It's very important and notable that these two women were singled out for their significant achievements in revolutionizing this field. So significant from a gender equity perspective, and that is very important that the Nobel Prize is correcting some of, I would say, historic tendency to not award major prizes to women. So that is great to see that these women did not have to wait for too long or miss out entirely for their significant contributions. But an example of the significance of collaborative work and the challenge of recognizing everyone who's involved can Take a look at the winners of the Medicine Prize this year, Harvey Alter, Michael Houghton, and Charles Rice. So all the way back in 2013, the Canada Gardner International Award, it's a $100,000 prize, was awarded for, the, again, basically the same topic, the discovery of the hepatitis C virus, and Houghton won that prize, except he turned it down because they would not recognize the significant contributions of his collaborators 
in particular, Dr. Kui Lim Chu and Dr. George Kao. He were his key collaborators for the discovery of the hepatitis C virus, but they were overlooked by the prize committee. And so as an act of protest and to try to give them some credit for the discoveries, he actually turned down the prize. Now, he has stated publicly that he's not going to turn down the Nobel Prize, but his point still stands, and he has made it that it's important to honour and recognise all of those involved in these collaborations and research. And the Physics Prize, for example, with the winners this year, Roger Penrose, Reinhard Genzel, and Andrea Ghez. Now, the original mathematical formulations and work by Penrose was decades before the actual other later work by Genzel and Ghez. They both did great stuff, and again, important to see another woman in the physics category recognised here. But this work was a huge collaboration involving lots of people to also work on how you could actually test the theories of Penrose and identify black hole formations and then discover them. So these projects that we think about the ideas in terms of simple headline acts with key figures, the actual nature of scientific collaboration, especially in the modern era, is for these big questions and big challenges, like with the Higgs boson discovery, it's huge teams, huge teams, not like five or 10 researchers working together across the globe, but hundreds of researchers working together across the globe. And if you factor out over the time that some of these things take to be done, we're talking about thousands of researchers over decades involved in contributing to solving this problem. Very difficult to warden a prize to all of those people, but to single out a few people whilst important doesn't necessarily capture the full picture which is why we really need to rethink the way these prize systems work in the modern era to A, be more diverse in their awarding of prizes so they consider people from diverse backgrounds, actually acknowledge a lot of the people doing the work and key contributors, as well as figure out some way to recognize large groups or teams. Now, this is already done in other categories in the Nobel Prize. For example, the winners for the Peace Prize this year and for several years have often organizations. And maybe you could do the same to single out a few key people and then also make specific mentions of the research team or group involved because all of these large discoveries often work with a large research group body or team and perhaps they could be recognized explicitly as well which is something to think about because the Nobel Prize for all of its flaws and challenges brings a lot of media attention to the world of science and that is a good thing but we'd be remiss if we didn't take this opportunity to find ways to improve it and make it better at representing the true nature of scientific research. turn from Tales of CRISPR and how it opened the door for scientific advances and actually look at some of those scientific advances. In particular, a recent paper published in the journal Nature Communications. Now, this research involves a range of collaborators, including researchers from Vives University College in Belgium, University of Wisconsin, and of course, VIB, the Flanders Institute for Biotechnology. Just on this point, this little paper and project led by Professor Wout Bourjan from the Fl Flanders Institute for Biotechnology collaborated with two other universities, one in the same country, one across the other side of the world, and involved key researchers like Dr. Barbara de Mista and Barbara Madrigarga Calderon, and other contributing authors to this paper. Now, they all worked together on this study, 
to study about using CRISPR for some pretty innovative things. But just to point out again that this was a large collaboration on a pretty pressing topic using CRISPR to help improve the efficiency of growing trees. But they worked together despite geographical and organizational boundaries and published a pretty interesting paper. Again, science is a collaboration between multiple people, each bringing unique skill sets and ideas to the table. So what exactly were these researchers looking at? Well, the idea here was to look at a way to use CRISPR, the CRISPR technology and approach, to help make better trees. Now, the reason is, well, if we try to think about what makes a tree, one of the important parts in the growth of any plant is, of course, the cells. As you remember, probably, that plant cell walls are pretty solid. That's what makes them rigid. Now, what actually contributes to that quite a lot is the complex polymer lingon. It's an organic chain of polymers that actually helps form or that supports tissues of vascular plants and even some algae. And it's incredibly important for cell walls, especially in wood and bark, because they help it to be rigid and strong and to avoid rotting. And these are all things that you want in a plant. The problem is, if you want to, say, make a tree and then grind it up to make paper or paper products like toilet paper and packaging. Well, you have a bit of a problem because the more lingon there is in the plant, the hardier that tree grows, but the more effort you have to go in to actually making something out of it. So this is really a huge difficulty. You can optimize for strong, fast growing plants with normal breeding techniques and a little bit of gene editing, but you end up with a lot of lingon in them. And that doesn't really help because it just makes the plants more inefficient to process. So if we want to use paper-based products to help save our planet and avoid plastics and cut down on fossil fuels and have almost a circular economy, you can do that with having more paper products. But you have to find a way to make those paper products much, much more efficient to process into paper goods. Wood, of course, can be a sustainable material and can even be carbon neutral as a resource for the production of even some of the chemicals. Now, the idea that Professor Vutabojan had was a few years ago, we performed a field trial with poplars that were engineered to make wood containing less lingon. Most plants showed large improvements in processing efficiency. The downside, however, that was the reduction in lingon accomplished with the technology we used then, which was RNA interference, was unstable and the trees grew less tall. In other words, as Professor Wood Pogen was stating, they could find a way to take out the lingon from the plants, which is great for the processing side, but they had unintended consequences. The method they were using, RNA interference, is more like a shotgun. You can blast things out that you didn't mean to damage. You can lead to cells that don't function as effectively as what they would have before. And that's a big issue. That shows the power of CRISPR because when they took the same problem and returned to it with the CRISPR technology, they were able to actually lower the amount of linger produced by actually taking out their gene expressions for that in a really specifically targeted way. In fact, the two trees grew just as well and just as tall with the specific lack of linger. It's like playing Jenga. They were able to take out the key gene for producing all that lingon with, without having any sort of damage to the rest of the tower. They didn't topple the whole tower, which is what they did before. And that's why CRISPR is so powerful as a technique. So as Dr. Barbara de Mista points out, poplar is a diploid species, meaning every gene is present in two different copies. 
So with CRISPR, they introduce specific changes in both copies of a gene. So one that is crucial for the biosynthesis of lingon. We inactivated one copy of the gene and only partially inactivated the other. The resulting poplar line was stable with 10% reduction in lingon and grew normally. And wood was from these engineered trees then had a 41% increase in processing efficiency. So what this research team was really able to accomplish was real fine tuning of not only deactivating genes, but also tweaking and partially deactivating genes that had a tremendous impact on the amount of lingon and thus the overall energy required to process these trees, but meant that the tree was still able to survive and thrive as it grows. This kind of thing would have taken years and generations to accomplish with a classical breeding strategy, even if it was possible at all. It may not have been. And that's the advantage of CRISPR. You don't have to use really broadband-based attacks like RNA expression or interference. You could use more targeted approaches, which enable you to tweak specifically the genes that you want in the exact place that you want, or multiple places in the case of this application. So this is important. It shows that the way CRISPR technique can be used and applied to help improve the growth of trees, make them still able to thrive and grow tall, but don't require as much energy to process. And this kind of technique could be applied to not just growing trees for wood or for paper and other industries, but also for crops too, specifically crops where we have to take off husks and shells and do a lot of processing work to them. I'm thinking grains and rice. So when we try to make a, a more efficient and a more green and sustainable circular economy, these little tweaks, though they don't sound like much, making a poplar tree grow to require less processing power, they can end up adding up, especially when scattered across lots of different industries, and having huge CO2 reductions and efficiency savings. And that is a very good thing for the planet. And this is not at all, I think, what Harpentier and Doudna had in mind when they collaborated after a conference and laid the groundwork for what would become the CRISPR editing technique. But it is certainly one of but a few many different possible applications of that technique. And that's why it's so powerful and was quite rightly deserving of the awarding of Nobel Prize. Now, this was some interesting research published in the journal Nature Communications with obviously lead authors, Dr. Barbara Dimista and Barbara Madriaga Calderon and a number of other researchers from a number of Belgian and United States universities. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. From the Nobel Prizes and the challenges of running a global award system and overcoming historical legacies, and the way to use CRISPR to make more sustainable wood and trees that grow faster, but not quite as strong. Our ending theme was composed by Audio and Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.